All right, we're in Romans chapter 5, if you'd open your Bibles there tonight. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. To gush, to run greedily out, to spill. That's the word the King James Version translates shed abroad, and the New King James Version translates poured out in Romans 5, 5. J.B. Phillips translates it like this. He says, Already we have the love of God flooding through our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. Think of the overflowing of a levee or the breaking of a dam. There's no stopping that flow of water. When you get saved, it's like the breaking of a dam as God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you and to flood and go on flooding your heart with God's inexhaustible love. If you were saved later in life, you might remember that initial flooding as waves of forgiveness and acceptance and hope washed over you. You were simply carried about on its currents wherever you went. Fast forward your life. You've been a Christian for some time. Instead of describing your life as being carried along by torrents of living water, it can seem like you're experiencing a spiritual drought. The promise of Romans 5 is that God is still pouring out His love into your heart. It comes with being justified. It's from God, and He won't revoke it. All of us seem to have a sense, some more than others, that God loves us more when we're good and less when we're bad. That He loves good little boys and girls, and He doesn't love bad little boys and girls. Uh, And what this text does for us, um, among the other amazing things is it brings us back to the understanding that God flooded our hearts with His love, and since it's by Him and by His Holy Spirit, that flood can continue. All we need to do is recognize it. If you and I are not experiencing that, then we have forgotten the joy of His salvation. And so verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, having been obviously in the past tense, you have already been justified by faith. The moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are fully and completely justified before God. You didn't begin to become justified after a life of effort and energy. That's important for many reasons, but one is that you can be sure of certain spiritual blessings that they are yours to experience and enjoy right now and any time you choose to avail yourself of them. Because you were justified the moment you believed and that it's not something you earn or deserve, whatever blessings come with justification, whatever's in that package, and Paul's going to tell us that in a minute, they belong to you right now whether you want to use them or not. Paul's going to identify several of these blessings. These cannot be reduced or lost because they originate with God and they are part of His freely justifying you. These are yours and ready for withdrawal. The first is that you have peace with God. Verse 1 goes on and says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We sometimes speak of people as having made their peace with God. It's just a phrase that we use. We, you know, uh, someone is deceased and they say, well, they, they made their peace with God. Uh, That's always wrong. Nobody makes peace with God. God makes peace with us. We can't make peace with God. He must make peace with us. 
We were at war with God because we were sinners by nature and by choice. Paul has spent three, four chapters actually describing what sinners we are and how lost we are and how at war with God we were. And so there's no making peace on our part. If peace is to be made, God must make it. God imposes his terms for peace in the gospel. His terms are the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died there in your place and in my place to deliver you and I from God's wrath against sin. When you accept his terms through surrender uh, to Jesus Christ, you experience his peace. He has made peace with you or you will continue in your war against God. You may not think you're an enemy combatant before you're a Christian, but you are. You're at war with God. When you surrender to God through Jesus Christ, you are immediately at peace with God. Having been justified, you have peace with God. And since it is God who has made peace with you and not the other way, you need never doubt his attitude towards you. This is all so important tonight because we just forget these things and they're so powerful. You can never doubt God's attitude towards you. Why do we? Because circumstances can get very severe in this life. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But God's attitude towards you is that he's made peace with you. That's why you can claim promises like Jeremiah 29, 11. Now, this is actually for Israel, but we claim it because of the tone of it. You probably have it up in your house somewhere. Uh, I don't even think you can be a Christian without... No, I'm just kidding. But everybody knows this verse. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. We can believe that is true of the Lord because he is the one who made peace with us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, like a peace that you see in the Middle East where everybody's lying to one another. God says, no, if you've come to the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where I make peace with you, and this is my attitude towards you from this moment forward. Now, because you are justified and at peace with God, you also have access to God, verse 2. For through, uh, excuse me, through whom we also have access by faith into his grace in which we stand. Now, the word access means entrance to the king through the favor of another. It's kind of a technical word. It's, it's what gets you entrance into the king. The Jew had been kept from God's presence by the veil in the temple, and the Gentile was kept out not just by a veil, but by a wall further out. When Jesus died, one of the remarkable things that happened, and it really happened, it physically happened, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and it was a, it was a head scratcher, but it symbolized that now the way into the presence of God was open through Jesus Christ. Then later on in the, uh, in the Ephesian epistle, Paul talks about Jesus having broken down the wall of partition between Gentiles and Jews. And though that's metaphorical, it also there actually was a wall of partition that, you know, as a Gentile, you could only go so far into the temple. And if you went any farther, then the, the Jews had the authority to arrest or maybe even kill you because you were a Gentile. And so Jesus has eliminated those barriers so that everyone has access to God. It is therefore the cruelest of heresies that teaches men they need other mediators to approach God besides Jesus Christ. 
You have immediate access to God through Jesus Christ. There is no intermediate access, not through priests and not through the deceased. Look, I understand how things work on a natural level. Growing up, I never asked my father anything. It's just the way it worked in our family because his answer was always the same. You know what it is. No. And even if I thought of a question that was made no, yes, it was still no. And so we quickly learned to get anywhere or do anything or, or, you know, whatever we wanted. You had to ask my mom in a weak moment, and she would ask my dad, and, and there would be a period of time that you would count on her getting an answer back to you. And so that's how things were. So, so I understand the intermediacy of my mother. And so a lot of times people, you know, then you talk to your friends who come from maybe a Roman Catholic tradition. And you think, oh, yeah, I understand that. You know, I talk to my mom to get to to dad, and so I guess we talk to Mary to get to Jesus. Oh, my gosh. What a terrible heresy that is. Or a deceased saint. I mean, after all, you know, I've heard people explain, well, you ask people to pray for you here, don't you? Ask, I ask Pat Mundy to pray for me. What's the difference if I ask a dead person to pray for me? Oh, wow. You've been drinking Kool-Aid, you know? I mean, that... (laughs) The difference is you don't need an intermediary to go to God. It's, I mean, you can ask people to pray for you. That's a whole other issue, but you don't. And Jesus established this. By the way, this isn't just my, you know, uh, you know ranting against a, a group. Uh, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he was doing some crazy things, people thought. And so they tried to send his mother and brothers to talk some sense into them, and Jesus wouldn't see them. And then he said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all? He says, they're all those who do the will of God. And so Jesus, I mean, obviously he cared for his mom, you know, his earthly mom, and he took care of her at the cross and all of that. But when it comes to spiritual access, he said, any believer has equal access to me, and no believer whether it's my mother or my brothers or my sisters, they don't have any more access to me as God than any other person who believes in me. And so just forget about all those intermediaries. It's it's a terrible heresy. Jesus didn't die to rip the veil and break down the wall so we could erect new ones. And, and And so it doesn't matter if you're a minister, a missionary, or what we call a layperson. You have immediate access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe said something about this also that I like in, in talking about the kind of access we have. He said, the child of a king can enter his father's presence no matter how the child looks. You, you don't have to really get all dressed. I mean, if you're meeting a foreign... Dig- I, some of you... Uh, some of the, the, really, the pictures that are really precious about the Kennedy presidency, John F. Kennedy, there's one particular picture of John Jr. sitting under the Oval Office desk playing while John Kennedy is probably deciding to send nuclear missiles somewhere, you know. And, and, and I mean, that's the, that's the idea. No, you, you know, if you're, if you're Nikita Khrushchev, you're not going to come and sit under that desk, you know, without an invitation. But if you're John John... You're just playing with trucks and stuff. And, and that's the picture that we have of our father. A lot of times, a lot of problems can be resolved. People think, well, what about this and what about that? And just say, okay, wait a minute. God is my father. And what is a good father like? What is a great father like? And it will solve a lot of these personal problems that we have thinking about 
having to be better and having to get cleaned up and all of this stuff before we approach God. A lot of times we, we treat God as if he is still distant. And I've told you, I think we've talked about it here and on Sunday morning, a lot of people today, and I don't begrudge them, I just don't agree with it, they want to get back into a more traditional kind of church situation where God is a little bit more distant in terms of language and, and you know, solemnity or being solemn, you know, and so instead of talking the way I'm talking now, I would talk like this in measured tones and say things like, God. And every time I'd say the word God, it would be God. Because he's reverent and to be reverent. And, 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 you know, I understand, I do understand that, but there's a danger to it. It starts to communicate that God cannot be approached as dad, you know. And, and so everybody wants to have this distance again. When God used to come down every afternoon and hang out with Adam and Eve and go for walks in the garden with them. Probably point out, have you figured, have you given a name yet to... Agrippanthus Pithecus or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing. And I mean, they had fellowship, you know. It, there wasn't any distance, and God doesn't want to have distance. Now, because you're justified at peace with God and have immediate access to him, you also have hope. Verse 2, we really are going to get to verse 11, but anyway, <laughs> this is good stuff. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In the Bible, hope means you're encouraged to look to the future with certainty. You can be certain of the glory of God. A couple of things come to mind when I hear the phrase, the glory of God. One is that God will reveal his glory at the end of all things. He will finish his plan of redemption for all mankind, and, and it will be glorious. The other thing that comes to mind is that I am the biggest part of that plan. Saving me and bringing me home to heaven is God's purpose for creating the universe. I will reveal his glory when he is finished with me and I'm in my glorious new resurrection body for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. I saw an old interview with astronomer Carl Sagan in which he suggested it is the height of arrogance to suggest that mankind is alone in the universe because of the mathematical possibilities of billions of galaxies and all of these things. You know what the real height of arrogance is? Suggesting there's no God who created the universe. That's arrogance. And you know what? God created the universe so that he could put you in it. So that he could put you in it. David, one of my favorite, favorite phrases in all the Bible, I know we always say that, but this really is where David is out there looking up at the stars and he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Because in that phrase, David is saying, God, I understand. I'm looking at the stars and the heavens and, you know, it's vast and it's amazing and it's innumerable and it's all so that you and I could talk, so that you and I could have a place to hang out together, so that I could see how glorious you are and how personal you are at the same time. We are alone in the universe except for the beings that God has described in the Bible. And it doesn't do any good. Well, I don't want to get into all that. Now, since it's true that you through Jesus Christ stand in the very presence of God, you're always able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Your earthly situation cannot affect your heavenly standing. That's why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could rejoice in the fiery furnace. I love those guys. They told 
King Nebuchadnezzar, God will deliver us or he won't. But either way, it's glory all the way. So he'll deliver us and it'll be glorious. And that's what he did. In fact, he did more than deliver them. He walked with them in the furnace. They came out of that thing without even smelling like smoke. Or he would have killed them and taken them home. And that's even more glorious. And so that's the attitude that a Christian can have. It's like, okay, things are going to get hot. I'm going to go into the furnace and I'm either going to be delivered through it to the glory of God or I'm going to get burned up in it to the glory of God. What's the difference really? Paul the Apostle said the same thing. He said, you know, I, I kind of want to go home to be with the Lord, but if the Lord wants to keep me here, that's fine too. And, and that's the attitude that we have. And so God's got you covered past, present, and future. The peace of God covers your past. Whatever you've done, God has made peace with you. Access covers your present. Whatever you need, spiritually speaking, you can go to God and seek from Him. And then hope is the sure promise of a glorious future. These are not merely philosophical ideas to meditate upon. They are practical tools to get you through everyday living. Does knowing these things really make a difference day to day? Well, let's take a look at how peace, access, and hope affect us in the worst situations of our life. Verse 3. Not only that, but we glory in tribulations. Trouble is the common lot of the human race, but only the Christian glories in it. It's not that you enjoy trouble or that you merely endure it. Even unbelievers do that. The idea here is that you actually glory in it because the glory of God reveals itself as you go through your trials. Because you're the person who has peace and access and hope And so a trial is something very different to you than it is to a person in the world. I'll never forget my brother one time. He had just become a Christian, and it's a long story. I can't get into it tonight, but uh, there was a situation, and, and, uh, well, he was working on my car. I had to to go to Los Angeles uh, from San Bernardino. I was going to get back late. I had to teach a Bible study, and I was kind of, you know, in that mode and stuff. And he was laughing at me, and I said, what's the problem? What's going on? He goes... He goes, he's trying to get my car to run enough to get me there and back. You know, he put some kind of crazy spark plug extender on it, you know, and stuff so that it wouldn't short, you know, I was going to say short out. That's how much I know about cars. But anyway, uh, anyway, so, uh, and so he looks at me, he's laughing. He goes, he goes, I just want to see how a more mature Christian handles their trials. I wanted to punch him in the face. That's how I handle my trials. (laughs) Here, uh, watch this. If he wasn't a lot bigger than me and stronger than me, I might have, you know, pop the hood on his fingers or something, you know. But he was right. What kind of a Christian are you? You're worried that you're not going to get to L.A. and back. So what? So what? Trials, that they're, they're, you know, we should eat them for lunch. We should glory in them. That's what, and we will if we think, well, wait a minute, time out. I'm justified, and that means I have peace, access, and hope. And you don't have any of those, do you? Maybe if I acted like I had those, you'd want those. And that's the deal. Tribulation is your servant, verse 3. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So obviously God's at work in your tribulation. Tribulation is the Greek word that means to press together. It describes the pressing of olives into oil and the crushing of grapes into wine. The application of this word to human suffering was first used in the New Testament. Christians were the first ones to think of themselves as being in a vat like olives or grapes and being pressed or crushed 
to the point where it brought forth oil and wine. What's nice about that is that it's not possible to have oil and wine unless olives are pressed and grapes are crushed. The process for producing really excellent oil and wine from the pressing and crushing of your life is this. Perseverance leads to character, leads to hope, one leading to the next. Even in, and especially in tribulations, the believer can persevere knowing he has peace with God, access to God, and a certain hope. Persevering, you experience God's proving and sense his approval, which is a measure of character. As you experience a greater sense of God's approval, confirms your hope. As your hope is confirmed, you can't help but rejoice. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Hope does not disappoint. You need never be disappointed or despair about one thing, and that is that God loves you. I don't care if it seems like he does or it doesn't seem like he does because of your circumstances. You cannot argue that God does not love you or that if he loved you, he would do something else. God can't do anything but love you. The love of God, it says, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit witnesses directly to your heart that God has an unconditional, unchangeable love for you. In the very moment you might despair or grow disappointed, it is the Spirit's responsibility to remind you of God's love. The answer to disappointment and despair is to be overflowed with the knowledge of the love of God for you. And the way to do that is to see what God has done for you in justifying you while you were yet ungodly. Paul describes this witness of the Spirit to your heart. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you every time you are disappointed or in despair. Verse 6 through 10, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul's reasoning here is simple and irrefutable. Since God justified you while you were yet ungodly, how much more will he do for you now that you are his dear child? You were once without strength to save yourself, but God acted to save you. You were still a sinner, ungodly and unworthy, but God acted in love to save you. You were God's enemy, but he acted in love to save you. He demonstrated his love for you once and for all by sending Jesus to die for you while you were in this hopeless condition. Now, I've done a lot of marriage counseling in my tenure as a pastor in different places, and a lot of times people have, they rightfully say to each other, you don't love me. And then somebody says, well, here's what I do for you to show you that I love you. And even I think, yeah, that's lame. What kind? Really? That's it? But when I say to God, you don't love me or else I wouldn't be in this situation with this dilemma or this disease or this trial, God says, yeah, I'm the one who died for you. Duh. Nanny, nanny. I mean, seriously, it's, 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 I'm making fun of it a little bit, but that's exactly what's happening here. God, Paul says you can never doubt the love of God because he demonstrated it. If I'm in a counseling session and I'm accusing God of not loving me and, and the counselor says, well, what have you done for Gene? Well, I died for him. Oh, 
oh, oh, well, Gene, you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, what more could he do? Well, he could keep me out of this situation. Ah, this situation is working for you a far more eternal weight of glory than you realize. You have to look back on your situation. You have to go through it and look back on it. You can't subvert it. If God did all that for you while you were hopeless, how much more does he want to do for you now? The answer is that he not only saved you from wrath when you were hopelessly lost, but you shall be saved by his life, meaning he has the power day to day for you to live. In verse 11, told you we'd finish. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Since you were reconciled to God in a hopeless state, how much more can you expect to receive now that you have the certain hope of your standing before God, justified by grace through faith? By the way, if you could be saved by works, if you could earn or merit or deserve salvation, you could never know whether or not God really loved you because it would all be on you. You would say, I did this and I satisfied something that needed to be satisfied, and therefore I'm accepted into heaven. But you'd have no real idea whether God loved you or not. There would be no motive of his of love. It would just be a legal obligation. Since salvation is God's gift received through faith, you can be absolutely certain God loves you. The only possible motive God has for saving you is love. It proves that he loves you, that he, and he demonstrated it on the cross. Ask God to restore to you the joy of his salvation. Know again that he shed his love abroad in your heart. When it says that God poured out his love in your heart, it, this isn't anything about us loving others or you know, even being a conduit of his love. This is God just flooding our hearts with his love that I remember when I think about when I got saved and I experienced that. And, and I know, you know, it, it sounds kind of petty, but let's eat trials for lunch. I mean, you're a Christian. This is where it's at. This is where the rubber meets the road. Peace, access, hope sets us apart. Because, and these are all gifts that are included in justification by grace through faith alone I do nothing to earn or merit them. God just gives them to me. And he says, whenever you doubt that, look at the cross and my love will flood your heart. Amen? Wow, Romans, it's a powerful thing.